But we're going to talk about getting the ark back. And I've got on this two chapters, neither of which we're going to read right through. But this is very relevant if you are um, uh, leading a community group or involved in a community group, which most of you are, because those are two key chapters. 1 Samuel 4 is when they lost the ark from the presence of uh, for, they lost the ark from the, amongst the people of God and 2 Samuel 6 is when it finally came back to where it should be in Jerusalem at the center of God's people and the whole story of the loss of the ark of the covenant and then it's being brought back into the center of Israel's life is bound up really around the life of King David in many ways i mean he wasn't around when they lost it but but uh, Samuel was, as a young man, a young prophet. And uh, it's David who finally restores the ark to its correct, correct place in the centre of Israel's life and in Jerusalem, the centre of the country. And actually the process, therefore, is a process of decades, going from the low point of 1 Samuel 4 to where it should be in 2 Samuel 6. 1 Samuel 4, which we will look at in a moment, so you might want to find that, is a real low point in Israel's life. Probably one of the lowest in a way. That's when they actually lose the ark from even their own presence anywhere in their nation. It's captured by the Philistines. Just to briefly say, and I'll refer to this later, when it comes back first, it's in a very marginal place in the city, in the, in the nation, a very marginal place for a long time before they bring it back to the centre. So these decades of getting the ark back, which I'm going to scan in one talk this morning, that's why I'm hesitant because I don't know how much you all know and I'm going to bear, bear with me if I have to give you a bit of information. These decades, I want to talk about them this morning as a sort of prophetic picture. That's, that's what's the burden of my heart. Now, it's not a new picture, and some of you may be familiar with it. I don't know if you are. But it is a prophetic picture, this whole issue, that God has used to speak to the church over recent decades. And I don't mean just this church, I mean the church. Getting the ark back is a prophetic word for the church in our generation. Our generation, those of us alive today, my generation, which is a little older than some of you here, but you as well. This process we're in of whatever God is doing in church, in our country and across the world, one prophetic picture that speaks to that is getting the ark back, which is why I'm looking at it. I want to give you a bit of understanding of what God is doing and what we're talking about. Sometimes this sort of church has been called a restoration church. That became a little bit of a a title at one time. But actually, it is true that God has been restoring things to the church. It has been an era of restoration, just as David's time was an era of restoration. This is a time when I believe God is at work. It's an exciting time to be in church. It's an exciting time to be a Christian. God is at work in the church restoring some things. It is my own personal conviction, very strongly held, that Jesus will come back for a beautiful, battling bride. That he will not come back for a church which is like an old lady, frail and ready almost to die, but just about snatched away before she passes out, passes away. He won't come back for a disjointed ugly-looking sort of creature (laughs) as his bride. 
Jesus will come back for a beautiful battling bride. The quality of church life when Jesus returns must be, I would argue, as great as the quality that he left behind. The difference will be that it will have matured. She will have matured. She will be a worldwide manifestation of his bride. And there will be representatives from every nation and tribe and tongue in heaven. There will be a maturity about the church when Jesus comes back. It won't be into a setting of great peace, I don't think, but it might well be conflict. But the bride herself will have a quality of life that will be comparable to the quality Jesus left behind. It would be ludicrous to suggest that Jesus would leave a church like the church of, say, Acts, is what I'm thinking about, the early church, and that he would come back for something in a mess. She would be better, she would be bigger and more mature, but the quality will be there, that was there at the beginning. The early church wasn't perfect, but as we read through the book of Acts, we find a group of people, followers of Jesus, who are powerful and dynamic. The presence of God is known amongst them. They see miracles, signs, wonders. They see a breakthroughs. They see massive conflicts at times. There is evangelism going on. There's church planting going on. There's dynamic apostolic leadership operating. There are, as I say, faults and failures. They're not perfect. But there is something outward going and moving and there's something of the presence of God. Surely God is among them. When, they, when a person like, when people like uh, Peter or John or Paul meet um, civil leaders in any setting, Festus or the Pharisee leaders, there's some sort of element of conflict. These people, God's amongst them. They're talked about as the people who've turned the world upside down. It's not as though they take over the world, but there's a sense that God is amongst them and doing things. Now, I don't think that's meant to change. I think the first 30 years of church history is recorded for us for this purpose. By the way, Acts is roughly, almost exactly in some ways, some people think, the first 30 years of church history. We can certainly say with accuracy that's roughly what it is. So Acts covers 30 years. And I think God is giving us a model, a template, saying any 30 years of church history should be like this. Until Jesus comes back, this is what they should be like. Roughly each generation should experience this sort of expansion. There'll be conflict, there'll be some disputes, but basically they'll be working forward, planting churches, evangelism, apostolic ministries, signs, wonders, and seeing healings and deliverances and sometimes supernatural conflicts. And yet, you know, shaking the kingdoms of this earth, but not taking them over. They didn't end up as senators in Rome. They were, they were doing something different. It was another kingdom. And I believe that is what we're called to be. Now, I think, therefore, what God restores is that sort of church life. We're operating 2,000 years later. We have iPods and microphones and buildings and all sorts of things that are okay and useful. They're not necessarily wrong. But the quality of what we're doing is meant to be what there was there in the early church. There is, it's meant to be restored. That's what we're looking for. Now, actually, all through church history, there have been sort of cycles of, of, of decline and then renewal or revival. And I believe we are in one of those periods. Thank God, I believe we're in essentially a renewal period, a re- restoration period that actually God is restoring things and focusing on certain things. Now, we could talk about many, many things under that subject of restoration and what is God renewing and restoring. But this prophetic story, or story which I want to use prophetically, focuses on the main thing, I would argue. A key thing for you to understand what is God doing in the church today? What has he been doing 
possibly for the last 30 or 40 years, from our perspective at least, in this part of the world. What is he restoring? And I believe this is a wonderful example, a wonderful prophetic picture to help us learn getting the ark back. So let's quickly get into this and apply it to ourselves as we go through. Under the old covenant, the ark of the covenant was the centre of the people of God's experience of God. Now, what was it? Here's a picture for you. Um, Thank you, John, for getting it off the internet for me. Is it going to go up there? I hope so. There you go. Now, essentially, it was a very beautiful object. It was covered in gold. It was uh, acacia wood, covered in gold, inside and out. It had a gold sort of plate on the top, very thick gold plate called the mercy seat, and two gold cherubims on the top. Its size was not enormous. It was probably about a metre and a half long, maybe about um, 70 centimetres, 70, 80 centimetres, sort of wide like that, and, and not that much more deep until you put the top on, maybe just 90 centimetres or something deep. It's hard to tell. It's all in cubits. A cubit was from the elbow to the fingertips. That was a cubit, how they measured. So you, you only can guess at it, but, but basically it was that sort of size, a big box covered in gold, very heavier as a result, and in it was a copy of the Ten Commandments, there was a bowl of manna, there was Aaron's rod that budded, and on top of it was the mercy seat. And this was the point. It was not the physical entity itself. It was, what, it was about what happened there. It was the place where God dwelt. Now, God is a big, big God, as we've been singing this morning. God is not restricted, they understood that, to one place. He never has been and he never will be. He's bigger outside time and space. But there was a place where you could meet God. The actual imminent presence of the living God was there. And the mercy seat was the place where the blood was sprinkled and where actually the people of God actually engaged with God. And actually they knew his presence there. They knew his glory. And when they were in the place where they should have been, only it was awesome. Only certain people dared go near it, the high priest. And actually in Solomon's day later when they got a restoration of the temple, there was such an awesome time when the presence of God was there. Nobody could get into the building. It was a place where sins were forgiven. It was a place where hope came. It was a place of of healing and and deliverance and all sorts of things happened. It was where the presence of God was known, imminent. The great God of the universe met men and women there. And the glory of God was known around the ark. It was the focus. Now, in 1 Samuel 4, the reason this is the lowest point is because the people of God have seemingly forgotten what it's all about. We're going to have to be very quick on this. If you've got 1 Samuel 4 open, that's useful. We won't certainly read it all. But what happens here is they're one of their lowest points. They go to battle against the Philistines, and in verses 1 to 4 of 1 Samuel 4, they actually are losing quite severely. So if we go down to about verse 3, when the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So they sent men to Shiloh and they brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. See, that was what I was talking about. And Eli's two sons, these were the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Basically, they were losing in battle, and the reasons we'll get to later, and they thought, let's get the ark there. Now, you could say, wasn't that right, the presence of God? Well, they were ignoring 
everything God had told them about it, which is the ark stays in the Holy of Holies, only ever approached by the priests. They don't need the ark. This is superstition. This is idolatry. You don't need a gold box. You need God with you. And if you're doing it right, and the ark is in the Holy of Holies, and you're worshipping him properly, God is with you. David didn't have to take the ark when he saw victories, nor did others. Like Joshua, in that sense, he took it round. It was a different time. and built the tabernacle. Don't confuse you. But basically, they didn't wave the ark at people as though it was some talisman. God was with them. And this was a, an art, a stupid thing. They were, they were somehow putting a superstitious trust in a box. It was idolatry, really. When they, when they had wandered far from God, which comes out in the earlier chapters of 1 Samuel. Well, what happens is that they lose the whole battle and they lose the ark. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought, the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now, as a result of that, there is a tragedy multiplied across Israel. Eli, who is the priestly father of Hophni and Phinehas, who is actually... um, uh, a reasonable man, we'll come back to him in a minute, he's, he's a more godly man, not so seriously sinful as these two, Hophni and Phineas. He also dies because when he hears the news of the ark, actually, he's devastated and as an old man he, he falls over and dies and hurt, you know, either has a heart attack or breaks his neck as he falls. It seems just collapsed, basically. And also his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, gives birth to a son. We're down now to about verse 19. As she hears the news, she goes into labour out of the trauma of it. So this is not a pleasant experience. It's a very severe thing. She actually dies in childbirth. And verse 20, as she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel. The ark of God has been captured. This was the Nadia. She, in her death, sees it and she calls her son Ichabod. The glory has gone from Israel. What's gone? The presence of God has gone. We've lost God. God has gone. He's departed from amongst his people. With just an empty shell, the glory has gone. Now, I would dare to say to you, without wishing to point the finger anywhere, because you can't, this is a big, big picture stuff, that there was a truth about this, about the state of the church, certainly as I was growing up, maybe going back a number of decades, that there was all sorts of things going on on the outside, but it was hard to find the presence of God anywhere. It was like you could say the glory had departed. The presence of God had gone. The church was dropping fast in numbers, declining in every denomination. Worldly and pagan philosophies held sway, as they still do, in many parts of the church. Not all, of course. Worldly and pagan philosophies. Others were legalistic and obsessed with detail, cut away off from reality, just desperate to get the outside right and to get the performance correct, sometimes fighting over small details of doctrine. As I say, at the liberal end, shall we say, there was an embracing of all sorts of uh, uh, false teaching. And so there was confusion and division. And most tragic of all, 
across much of the church in UK and Western Europe, you'd be hard, find, hard put to find the presence of God, the imminent presence of God. There were places, God never departs completely, but there were huge sort of barren tracts of church life where you couldn't meet God anywhere. It might, didn't matter what sort of worship we're talking about, it was an empty shell. The glory of God had gone. The presence of God had departed. But God has been doing something about that. And we need to understand what he's doing and we need to keep on track with it. Because this story of the restoration of the ark is not a quick thing, on and off. It's through a lifetime. And we're just going to talk about it. And I'm going to use three very simple questions about this history to do that. How did they come to lose the ark? Now, we're going to have to rely on the the, the PowerPoint sometimes in a moment for for scriptures because there'll be too much flicking around. So bear with me as I sort of tell you the story. The general answer is that they lost the ark because of a spiritual decline amongst the people of God. The ark was not lost because of this last action or two. That was final fruit of a folly and a foolish attitude. They began to lose the ark, if you like, long before that, when they no longer saw its importance or obeyed God. And you could specifically say that they particularly got into that state because of the spiritual leaders of God's people and their own decline. In 1 Samuel 2, we'll put a few of these verses up. You just get a a feel for it. Look at them. Eli's sons, the priests, were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. There's a phrase, they had no regard for the Lord. The sin of the young men, this is the same too, the priests, was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. So they had no regard for God. They treated God's things with contempt. In practice, they were lining their own pockets. When people brought sacrifices to the temple, they took a big chunk of it for themselves, for their own food. Then later, the next slide, there was another feature. Now, Eli was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. They were sexually immoral. So they were exploiting people, they were taking stuff they shouldn't, they had no regard for the Lord, and they were actually sexually immoral. Now, I'm not saying this is true generally, but the state of leadership amongst the people of God some decades ago was very poor. There were two weaknesses here, and there there have been two weaknesses in our own experience. One was this one, which was an extremely serious one, where people who were supposed to be leaders of God's people were showing no regard for God's law, no regard for his word, quite despising of all the details God had given and taking no notice of them, and actually were promoting sexual immorality. Sometimes stuff that was not common amongst the ordinary people was common amongst the priests. That is quite a serious state of affairs. And I would suggest to you it's not a thousand miles from some of the things that have happened in the more liberal wings of church life over the last few decades. And I'm not even going to get into the detail, but the idea that you can promote sexual immorality and say it's a good thing, whether it's, you know, uh, active gay relationships between priests and, and their partners and things. And there's all sorts of junk that's gone on. Pluralism, mixing religions, uh, modern philosophies of humanism brought into the church, which just makes the whole thing no regard for God, no respect for his word, no respect for his standards. That's one big problem. But that wasn't the only one. The other problem was Eli. Eli was quite a good guy in himself. He was quite a holy man. He wouldn't have done what his sons were doing. He wouldn't have dreamt of it. But his problem was his weakness. He did nothing about his sons. 
Nothing about them. We haven't actually got the scripture for that because I forgot to put it on the PowerPoint. But if you, I will just refer to it. If you wanted to, you'd be looking at uh, 1 Samuel 2. And it just summarizes around verse 29 uh, what happened. It was actually verse 27. A prophet came to Eli and brought a strong word to him. Basically, Eli didn't like what his sons were doing, but he just put his head in the sand and did nothing about it. So verse 29 reads, Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offerings? This is what God's saying to Eli, that I prescribe for my dwelling. Why do you honour your sons more than me? By fattening yourselves on the choice parts of the offering, etc. Now actually it was a bit unfair, because Eli didn't actually do what his sons did. But God says, if you honour them more than you do me, you're doing the same thing. That's a sober challenge for every one of us here. There's a lot of asides I want to make as I talk through this. God says, if you know something's wrong and you do nothing about it, you're just as guilty as those who do it. And particularly so if you are in authority and do it. Now, Eli was in authority. He was the father of these two. He was the, 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 the old priest. He knew all about God's ways. But he, didn't, he just had his head in the sand as all this was going on around him. He just let it go on. And God says, you're honouring your sons more than me. That is a powerful statement from God. God says, don't do it. Now, so we had a, another huge area of weakness, we could argue, where, where, where the other angle of the leadership was a head-in-the-sand approach, just letting stuff go on all around and being far too busy with the minutia of what he was concerned with and not really doing anything about it. The final culmination of that, I think, is on the PowerPoint. 1 Samuel 3.1 summarises the state the people of God had got into. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare and there were not many visions. Now, that's what was happening when the presence of God went. The word of the Lord was rare. Basically, nobody heard the God's word much. There were no visions. Nobody was bringing prophetic words. There was no nowness about God. There was no imminence about him. You, you didn't feel God turned up and dealt with things. You didn't feel he was talking to you. He wasn't. That's why you didn't feel it. God had already withdrawn long before the natural culmination of their decline in the, in the chapter 4 we read. Now, I don't think that the church in our country was in a good way a few decades ago. In fact, it's still not fully restored, to be honest. These sort of things given by people who say they're God's shepherds offend God. When, when people who say we are God's leaders behave in ways similar to these priests, that is offensive to God and he doesn't engage with it. He stands back from it. And actually, there was a time when you could say that the word of the Lord was rare and there weren't many visions amongst God's people. But we have always got to keep on the front foot that we don't stray back to that. This is not like a light, it's switched on and off. This is something that hangs on how the people of God behave. The presence of God is, is linked to our ongoing obedience to his word, our ongoing submission to him, and our desire that he should be amongst us and present amongst us. And if we end up focusing like these priests did on their own little worlds, their own little worries, you have no guarantee it carries on. And so this is not a heavy thing, but it's to say to you, we are in, it is a bit heavy because we're in the middle of something. We must keep going. I wouldn't say to you that the church in the UK is where God wants it yet. I wouldn't say to you that we're necessarily where God wants us yet. 
I would say we're a lot better off than we used to be. We're not in 1 Samuel 4. The process has gone on a lot since then. But actually, we want to be with the the presence of God right at the centre. The goal is what, if some of you know your Bible, is David and David's tabernacle, where the whole thing was centred around God and worship. And where it was not just pie in the sky, friends, what was happening was David at the same time was winning outstanding victories against the Philistines. Under David, in his, at his height, they had the tabernacle of David and the presence of God sort of beaming in the centre of them and they were expanding the kingdom daily. He was taking on the Philistines and pushing them back again and again. So there was a, a sense of the presence of God amongst his people and a pushing back of the enemy. That's where I want to be. Now, it, it is a process before. That's not in 1 Samuel 5. That's 2 Samuel 6. And it's a way away from this point we're looking at here. But there's a sobering, challenging lesson about the state of God's people and the state of the leadership. Okay, why was the ark so important? Let's move on quite quickly. Why was it so important? We'll be quick, but it's an important thing to say. The ark was important because it was what Israel's religion was all about. It was the thing that made them distinct. Not the ark itself, but what happened around it was the thing that made them distinct from every other nation. They had the living God in their presence. You see, other nations had all sorts of idols and probably amazing golden objects, perhaps more beautiful than the ark. But the thing is, the ark for them was symbolic but actually real as well in their case, in the Old Covenant, of where God was amongst them. The living God was with them, the God of creation. His presence was known in their midst. If they didn't have the ark, if the glory had gone, the whole thing was pointless. They were just another little tribe, possibly smaller than many of the ones around them, Philistines and whatnot were probably bigger tribes, And for all their rituals and robes and sacrifices, it was pointless if God wasn't there. What's the point of that if God's not there? You know, they could do their bobbing and weaving and dressing up in funny clothes. But if God wasn't there, what was the point of that? And in any case, at any other level, they were weaker than most of the tribes around them. This was the thing that did it. They were God's people and they were God's people. And it really was the creator who was with them. This is the awesome grace of God's choosing and God's sovereignty. That Israel were chosen. They were not a great people. That's nothing special. But God chose them. And if there was a place on earth, and there was, where the living creator could be known, it was amongst these people. Oh, there were other tribes with very magnificent, I should think, um, some of the civilizations going on around them, as you know later in church his, um, Bible history, Assyrians and Babylonians knew a lot about beautiful architecture, but this was about the presence of God, the presence of God amongst them. You know, it's the same with the church. If we haven't got the presence of God, what is the point? You know, what is it? If you want a legalistic religion that is very... Uh, sort of rigorous and impressive, become a Muslim. They do it a lot better. If you want a legalistic religion that is utterly focused and rigorous, you can find a better one if that's what you want. I don't. I want the living God. If you want a religion that's full of strange and beautiful experiences, 
almost occult at times and has an ancient history and a myriad different sensations. Go and become a Hindu. They've got some incredible temples. You can go in there and be freaked out or lifted up or whatever. You'll engage with something, goodness knows what. If you want that, that's not the living God, go and do it. That's what we need to understand. If you want a religion that focuses on the self and on the person and who draws as much as they can out of you and somehow teaches you to handle yourself, be a Buddhist. If you don't want too much about eternal life or, or God a creator, you want it all a bit self-centered, that's, why, that's what's happening in our culture. People are looking for those things, they're finding them. Buddhism does it a lot better than Christianity. But Christianity, real Christianity, is about the only God there is being around. And the only answer there is being around. Buddhism won't save you. Islam won't save you. Hinduism won't save you. And nor will the aberrations of those religions and a myriad others. They'll do other things loads better than we can do it. You know, if you want to be legalistic, find one that really knows how to be legalistic. We need the presence of God. That's what it's all about. That actually, when people come amongst us, they meet with God. And God actually does his grace work in their hearts, and the gospel changes them from the inside, all the things you know, and they were born again of the Spirit, and a Holy Spirit change takes place, and you are united with Christ and given eternal life, and you become a child of God filled with the Spirit, and your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit, and we together become a temple of the Holy Spirit, because God dwells here. And we don't get it right all the time. And we do make mistakes. But this is the only place people are going to meet the living God. Amongst Christians. And if we don't understand it's the presence of God that makes us what we are, we could be anything. We could be a welfare club or a social club, which is often what people want to talk you into, or being a, a, just a, a charity. I mean, all it's not, you know, but the thing is, it's the presence of God, isn't it? Isn't that what it's about? If we want to do charity, we'll probably do it better through Oxfam. They're focused. They get on with it. They do it well. You know, but I don't mind doing those things. They're all part of manifestation of the life of God. I do understand that, helping the poor. But it's the presence of God that we need. Isn't it? That needs to infect everything we do. So if we do have a lovely building and nice music and we do good works, which we all of those things want to do, they have the presence of God in them. Amen? It's not that they're an end in themselves. Because Israel got to this point where the glory had gone. Well, what is it then? There's nothing. And others can do better what you're trying to do. Now, the presence of God is awesome also when it comes to the conflict with darkness. Oh, boy, we need three mornings, not one. Probably I shouldn't do it. But if you just flick over in your Bible to Samuel 5, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 5, even in defeat, and I put genuine inverted commas around defeat because God's never defeated. Even in defeat... There was something awesome about this ark because God was associated with it. So I love this story. I can't resist reading these few verses. When I was a little boy in Sunday school, I had a favourite chorus. And it was, down went Dagon, smashed in pieces when the ark of God went in. I liked it because it was all about things being smashed. And it had a nice deep, does anybody know it? Down went Dagon, smashed in pieces when, I'll teach it to you. When the ark of God came in. Yeah, one or two know. You know, Reg, don't you? Now, I loved it. 
it was a bit livelier than most of the things we sang. Uh, and, it, and it suited my temperament more than, you know, you in your small corner and I in my... Jesus wants me shine with a pure, pure light. I thought, oh, I don't know. I like this one. Down went Dagon, smashed in pieces. I preferred that. So I love this story. Here we go. I think it was prophetic then. God was doing something in my spirit, probably. Verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Now, Dagon was a huge idol behind the foul but powerful demonic religion of the Philistines. They, they put it in Dagon's table, temple beside the Dagon. When the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold and only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon or any others enter Dagon's temple Ashdod and step on the threshold. And do you know what they actually did? Look at verse 7. When the men of Ashdod saw what had happened, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. So they got rid of it, basically, summarising. I love, this is one of the, look, God is the only answer to the battles we've got to fight. The demonic strongholds in your life, let alone your nation, are too great for you to deal with without God. There is a spiritual battle that was going on here, but we understand it far more today, that there, is, there are demonic strongholds, there is spiritual power behind things that resist God and that mock God. There is spiritual conflict in our day, in our lives sometimes even, and certainly in our families sometimes and in our culture, in our workplace and in our nation. And the only real answer is a spiritual conflict in terms of God coming in. You can, I mean, we can do stuff, and they do do stuff here. They fight battles. David waves a sword around and sticks it in people, and he does fight battles. But if God isn't with them, those battles don't work. That's what happened in 1 Samuel 4. They were also waving swords around and sticking it in people, but more people were sticking it in them than they were sticking in others. And in the end, they lost, and the loads of them died. Now, actually, the real issue isn't about how, how, we, how good we are with our swords. It's about, is God with us? And it's the presence of God that gives victory. Amen? So if we're going to see people delivered from demons, changed in their lives, we need the presence of God. It's not just a feeling. It's about the Word of God. It's about our worship. It's about our attitude, our lives. It's about our focus on the God's presence with us, the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to see healings. We need the Holy Spirit to see people set free. We need the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel and to worship God. We need him for everything. And when he turns up, Dagon's collapse. That's what happens here. When the, spirit, when the presence of God is there, this foul, powerful, demonic religion just collapses. And God just does it to show And do you know what they did? How stupid, and yet how human. They propped it up, didn't they? The first time they propped it up, then it falls over again, it's all smashed. And so what do they do? They get rid of God. (laughs) Isn't that how how common? Now, we can even do that, to be very honest with you. Sometimes the presence of God is uncomfortable. It disturbs our idols. Because God won't have 
anything else worshipped instead of him. And when he comes into, on the scene, other stuff goes. If you are sold out for Jesus, you will not be able to go with the other idols of our culture. It just makes you different. You can't help it. It shakes the demonic world, the presence of God. It brings down idols in our lives. The presence of God is not always comfortable, brothers and sisters. It doesn't make us comfortable. It's not safe to have God around. Because he doesn't like idols. He doesn't like stuff that upsets him, that offends him. He's not touchy. I'm not implying that. He's a holy God. And stuff that is not in harmony with him will come down when God turns up. Now, that means that when God turns up, our lives get turned upside down sometimes. I know that. And sometimes it's disturbing of us. And there are little idols we've got, little strongholds in our lives that crumble and begin to shake when God turns up. And we often have a choice, like the Philistines did. Are we going to embrace this, or are we going to shove it off somewhere? Which is what the Philistines did. They said, we want our day again. They glued his arms back on, they glued his head back on, and they got rid of God. What a sad thing. They had an opportunity, perhaps to, I don't know, get saved in, in New Testament terms, and they turned their back on it. They could see the presence of God here. They knew it was disturbing everything they liked. And they hung on to what they liked and they got rid of God. Just be careful we don't do that. Any of us. It's a a sort of tendency that can always be there. Don't try and prop up idols that God is shaking. Or worse than that, get rid of him. So this is too disturbing. Because the presence of God does bring conflict. It brings conflict with the forces of darkness. It brings conflict with things that stand against God. And it's what gives victory to the people of God is that God is with us. It's not our ability to fight. It's having God with us that gives victory. So, what is happening? What has happened? And what is happening in the church? Well, I think... It's not about, what God's doing, it's not about jollying up services, giving us electronic guitars. Um, It's not about informality or relaxed services. It's certainly not about less demanding Christianity. Oh, we can all go to the pub now. It's not even about principles of church government or apostles and prophets or techniques or something. I honestly believe the heart of what God's doing and has been doing for several decades and continues to do is restoring the presence of God, active, imminent presence of his spirit amongst his people. Now that will affect how we worship. It will affect our uh, our attitude to the grace of God. It will affect how we preach the gospel. It will affect all sorts of things. But those things are not restoration. Restoration is getting the art back. Restoration is getting God back at the centre of the church and getting God's presence as the paramount thing we look for amongst us and seeing that it's the imminent presence of God that we seek, that we are sensitive to his spirit when we're preaching the gospel. We're sensitive to his spirit when we're worshipping. We are looking for visions. We're looking for prophecies. We're looking for God to speak. We're not, we're not saying they're everything, but they, the gifts of the spirit are part of what God's doing. But it's the only thing that you can really say is so important, we must not lose it, is to get the presence of God. We might be flexible about some of these other things. I'm sure one day we'll all be playing instruments through some little iPod or something. But, you know, it's all changed, doesn't it? They've all got things on their ears these days. 
you know, the technology will change. But actually, in the end, it's the presence of God. It's great to have these things, but, but, but they, they're all around what we're looking for, is to meet God. Is that right? And it can happen in our small groups too, and, and should do. And it can happen just in our daily lives. We are temples of the Holy Spirit in our personal lives. Well, we haven't time to explore at any length how they got the ark back. It is probably appropriate that I don't go at great length. But that is the last question. I will summarise for you, because it's important, what happened. Actually, it is a process that takes quite a bit of time. It starts quite early on in 1 Samuel 6. How did they get the ark back? We're just quickly looking. 1 Samuel 6 is where it starts... Because there is a sovereign act of God, is the way I would describe it, certainly for Israel. They lost the ark, they are in a terrible state, but meanwhile, the Philistines are finding the ark too hot to handle. So the Philistines put the ark on a cart with some new, uh, some, I see cows that have just had their calves. They've got some funny idea, haven't they? They're testing out what, what will happen. So I think it is, and they send these cows off, pulling the cart, these oxen, and they pull the cart right back into the land of Israel, which is in itself a little bit miraculous. They don't go looking for their calves, they go straight. So there's a sovereign hand of God, that's the bit you need to get. There's a sovereign hand of God that begins the process. And I would say to you that in church life, God has done things over the last few decades. There have been some significant sovereign hands of God evident in bringing a sense of God's presence back to the church. What actually happens historically here is that this is fairly marginal for a long time. So the ark is kept in a marginal place. Sorry, the scriptures would help you, wouldn't they? Um, 1 Samuel 6.13, you guys doing that, thank you. Sorry, I didn't give you the hint. That's what happens. The people are harvesting and they looked up and they saw the ark and rejoiced at the sight. So there's a sovereignty of God here. They're busy with their harvesting. They look up and the ark turns up on a car. Wow, the ark's come back. So that's what happens there. And uh, this is what happens next. It's the same part of the story. One Samuel, the next slide, thank you. They sent messengers to the people of wherever it is, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark to the Lord. Come down and take it up to your place. Return the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your place. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Elisa, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. Basically, that was okay, but that was not the best thing. There wasn't a, it was just on the edge. So they didn't really embrace it right in the centre of God's people. They had it back amongst his people, but it was fairly marginalised. And that was true through most of Saul's reign. Most of Saul's reign, the ark was there, and they went and did stuff to it, and, it was, and God was honoured, but it wasn't central. It was David who was determined to see this back at the centre of the life of the people of God. And that story, which we're not even going to look at this morning, but you can look at it if you're interested, and perhaps for a community group, is in 2 Samuel 6, which is the final stage, many years later, when the ark is brought from the edge of things to the very centre in Jerusalem. And they have to learn to do things God's way, because they put it on a cart to start with. Now, it says nothing in the Bible about carrying the ark on a cart. God says you carry the ark on the shoulders of priests on poles, like you saw in the picture earlier. On those poles are carried on the shoulders of priests. They took no notice of what God said, and they got a bright idea from the Philistines. Because the Philistines put it on a cart, 
That's not what God told them to do. So they put it on a cart. And then it began to rock and sway as the cart jolted over the humps and bumps. And a guy called Uzzah stopped it from falling and got struck dead by God. Which is a bit hard, you could think. But really, there's a big lesson here. God says, you don't mess around with my word. You don't mess around with my word. And David was, was, was devastated, actually, but he sought God. And he realized they weren't doing it right. So the next time, you can read carefully, you see they carried it properly on poles. And, and they worshipped and they reverenced God. They didn't treat it with the lightness. Actually, they were treating it lightly. They were very flippant about it at first. But now they realize they've got to do it God's way. And that's how they finally rejoiced and worshipped and brought the ark back right into the centre of God's people. So there's lots of things to learn. But I think the big lesson is this. The presence of God is not to be marginal in church life. It's okay out there, but that's not where it's meant to be. The glory of God is meant to be at the centre of everything we do. The presence of God. We acknowledge him. Lord, we need you to run this cafe. We need you to reach out to these people. We pray about lots of things. We worship before we do lots of things. That isn't out of habit. That's because we know that God's presence is important. If he's not there, it's going to be a waste of time. Farmer's market, whatever we're doing. Because we're very, very conscious that the presence of God... Bear in mind, I'm swapping from old to new covenant all the time. In the new covenant, it's not about box. It's not about robes and rituals. But it is about the spirit of God with us. It's about the presence of God amongst his people. And the high point that they reach with David is to just focus on God at the centre of everything they do. And the tabernacle of David is where the ark is finally put, in Jerusalem. And there, tonight, we'll be reading Psalm 84. Because that's where David could go and worship God, and many others, not just David, as they came into the presence of God in this beautiful, beautiful tabernacle where the ark was kept in David's time. And and they understood God is in our midst. We're God's people. What is God calling us to do? And when you find David going out for battle with the Philistines... He doesn't take the ark with him, but he does talk to the God who he knows is amongst them. And God says, well, this time you're to listen until you hear the wind in the mulberry trees. No, this time you're to go straight out and hit them face on. And and so he's learned to follow what God says, because they're God's people. He doesn't need the ark, he needs God, and he's got God, and he's worshipping God, and he's centred on God. And so having God at the centre of what we do is a key, key part of the restoration process. Now, in a way, I've given you too much to digest. For some of you, that will be slightly familiar, but I think that will be a minority in this room. So for many of you, you might have thought, what was that all about? And even as I finish, I hope you've got the feel of it. The feel of it is this. The church is about being the people of the living God. And the most important thing is we need the presence of God amongst us. We want the glory of God to be known amongst us. Anything we do, and we will do many things, if that's not central, it will all be futile. And the church does not automatically do this. We only have to look back a generation or so, and I think the church was pretty well in the state of 1 Samuel 4-ish. 
But God has done some sovereign things. And there's been some wonderful things over the last few years and decades where, where the Spirit of God has come in and, and begun to shake us up. And, and we're all much more open to the presence of God. And we know more about the Holy Spirit in our own personal little body temples and in the corporate temple when we come together. But if we don't keep that as the main thing and central, we won't achieve what God's got for us. It's not marginal. The presence of God is central. And how David brings it back is very instructive because it is actually important that you obey God's word. And although we are casual and, well, not casual, more relaxed and flexible, that's only because we understand the grace of God and we understand the New Testament and we don't want to be legalistic. It's not because we've suddenly lost interest in doing things the right way. We have got to be people of the word. Our righteousness has got to be good. We're not to be compromising sexually in other ways. We've got to show real trust and obedience to God's word. When David was casual with the ark, it didn't work. He had to do what God told him to do. But it was also a time of great joy and rejoicing as they brought the ark back central. For us, I think we're talking about things like real faith, We need faith to be central. Righteousness, the word of God, needs to be preached and believed and taught. We need active, every member committed to following Jesus and being his disciple. Real relationships, healthy and New Testament, not allowing problems to linger and stay. We need to be strong on the grace of God and the gospel of grace. We need to have Jesus central to everything we do. Jesus Christ is our ark, really. He's our central feature and focus. We want the gifts of the Spirit operating, miracles, signs, wonders. A New Testament quality of life is what what it means to have God in your midst and God moving amongst his people. When he does that, it won't always be comfortable. Sometimes Dagon's will be shaken when God turns up. Then we must resist the temptation to prop them up and say this is uncomfortable. We must let them come down so that God can be central. I actually believe that God may be moving again in the church to bring things on another phase. I mean, all churches perhaps are wider than us anyway. Uh, I think there has been a lull, a bit of a marginalising, but I actually think the ark or the presence of God is on the move again. The glory, it's not that it's lost completely, but the process is still going on of getting it back to the centre. And we want the ark, the glory of God, the presence of God, central to our church life because ultimately that's the thing that's going to give the enemy a real shaking because we want our culture shaken and it will be shaken by people who know their God and who have him in their midst.